Hello everybody, it's Ben Gothard and we're here with another Project Egg interview. Today we're talking to Chris Brock from Cincinnati, Ohio. How you doing, Chris? Doing well. Awesome, Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you. So let's jump right in. Uh, my first question for you, Chris, is what is your story? Great question. I grew up in Cincinnati. Played basketball, so I went to play basketball in college in New York. When I got to New York, I realized my NBA dreams were dashed, but I really hit the books, really knocked it out in college, enjoyed that. Um, I was elected to be on the student trustee board of the college on a SUNY school, so that was really cool. Um, got my degree, realized New York was great, so stayed there for about 10 years. When I was there, I worked jobs that um, were conducive to just being in New York. And when I was doing that, I got into tech. Um, first, just building some small stuff or hacking around on some things. And I was able to turn that into a real business. Um, one of the first things I was able to do was generate leads for wedding vendors. And I started something called the Wedding Social Network, which was a great way for vendors to communicate with brides. And it was really um, a great experience that pushed me right into the startup world. I worked at some pretty um, pretty large startups. Um, one of the startups that I worked at raised $1.5 million. We built Facebook apps that if you had – this was prior to the news feed. So if you had a YouTube page or Vimeo or um, Pinterest, you could easily put it on your Facebook page. Um, from that, we pivoted into social loyalty launched that in Rome, Italy in 2012. We had a global ecosystem of loyalty providers, which was awesome. Um, the founder of the company had really big aspirations. So he ended up taking over an IPO NASDAQ listed um, advertising company. And I was in that space handling omni-channel advertising management for big brands in finance, um, Coca-Cola, Amway, Diageo, InBev, like real big names. Um, from that, I really enjoyed it. Brought on um, Valvoline Instant Oil Change. So all of their locations use the system. And from that, it gave me the confidence to start my own startup. So I have my own startup now, went through, raised the seed round of $300,000 about um, 14 months ago to build a cloud brokerage platform that would provide source solutions to um, businesses that are um, cost effective and efficient for business. So that's where we're at today. And I'm just trying to be cutting edge. And so that's sort of the business story. I'm also a father of two girls, got a little boy on the way and got a wonderful wife. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be cool. May, my little boy shows up. So that's going to be awesome. Round out the family real well. Absolutely. So, you know, you had a great story, by the way, very, um, a lot of different things you did. Uh, I kind of want to go back through and, and kind of dissect it and, and dig a little bit deeper. So you said you started off um, playing basketball um, and, uh, and and you played, you said you played throughout high school and then you wanted to go to college to play ball. Um, what did that teach you as far as being in athletics, being an athlete, what did that teach you and how did it contribute to your success now as an entrepreneur? Oh, very cool. I loved basketball. My coach, um, I had a coach, Bob Piano. He was awesome. We had a play called um, Synchronicity. Okay. And it just, 
was always continuous and it was about working with the team. So I always remember just that theme all the time that um, you might not always make the bucket. You may not always pass it to the right person. You may not make it always happen, but it's always going to continue on. And eventually you're going to find these um, points that just work out and it's going to be um, continuous or in, in our the other play was continuity that we used to run. So it was just always moving and not stopping. So working as a team is always important and just knowing that it really doesn't stop. No matter if you're hitting buckets or not, you got to keep going. Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, I think you said something that was really important that you have to go and go and, and it might not work out at first, but eventually you'll find the points that it does work. And, you know, I think that, that absolutely translates into entrepreneurship because, you know, you got to struggle, you got to struggle in the beginning and, and really find your footing, find those points that work and then go for it. Um, but, but you also talked a little bit about teamwork. Could you maybe um, expand a little bit on that and, and talk about the importance of teamwork in entrepreneurship? Sure. So for me, I have always liked being on a basketball team because you have four other people in the court and five or six people on the bench that are your team. When I got into the startup world, I realized that, Hey, it was, it was very hard, especially when I first started to actually get people to join your team. Most people feel that they can code anything and they had their own projects. So to actually get that team together was difficult um, initially. So it was much more difficult for me initially realizing that I didn't really have that team. But looking at the entire internet and what's offered like open source tools, you really, really can see that there is a team out there and there's so many tools and solutions and assets that you can leverage to build your team around. So you may not build it in-house, you may just be using other open source software, but you actually can work off of already built systems. Then once you can find that you can hit a rhythm, and run with it, you can start building a team. And just last night I had um, one of my um, co-founders over and just brilliant. He came over and gave me the best idea and it just really ignited me in a new, a new way where, you know, it can be a grind when you're, when you're really working every day to build a tech company. So to have partners in there that you let in that are active and there to help, um, it's just great because it can point you in the right direction or even if it's something that's very simple, it may elude you personally, but someone from the outside or a teammate can find. And that's great. Delegating is also great if you can find a good team to delegate to and sort of pass the ball. So I'm very grateful for just the teammates that I do have and all the work they do. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're, when you're an entrepreneur and, and when you're running your own businesses, it, it can be a little lonely at the top. So, you know, having those team members around can also help with morale. And, and like you said, you might have this, this really complex system and the, the, the solution, you know, you might be stuck. The solution could be right in front of you. It could be that really simple thing, but you're so invested in it, you're so close, you can't really see. So having those other people to come in and bounce ideas off of, that is so important. You know, I really think that, that what you said was absolutely correct. Uh, you, you mentioned that when you got into college, um, you realized that your dreams of going to the NBA may not have been quite your path. Um, so, so you said you, you really hit the books and, and started learning. So my question for you is a two-part question. Uh, first, one, what was your major? And two, how did the things that you learned in school 
contribute to future success? Awesome. This is probably one of my favorite subjects. If I, once I realized that, A, I got hurt, I ripped my hamstring up. And once I got to the college level, players just were 10 times better. You know, you may have one person on each team that's like an A player. You get to college and everybody's an A player. And then there's even better players than you've ever played with. So I definitely needed to hit the books. I, I really... I was lucky that I found a great mentor and um, Dr. Joseph Watson was his name um, is his name. He was the Dean of Students and Enrollment Management, and he really got me involved in student leadership. He knew that I was sort of a leader on the court and I really liked that passion. I never really was like a standout leader in high school other than playing sports. But in college, I got really involved on campus and I was elected by the students, not only in the student government, but to be on the student trustee board. So being on the board of trustees was really awesome. It was a great experience. And it gave me the ability to look at school um, from the business perspective, really, um, handling tenure and curriculum and student activities and um, just the whole gamut that comes with school. So that was not really what I majored in, but it really was something that um, I really tuned into. My favorite subject is philosophy. Um, I got a degree in clinical psychology, but I would say I, I definitely minored or slightly majored in philosophy and especially something that's called phenomenology. Okay. Which is a German philosophy from the same time frame when quantum physics was being, a, becoming a science really in the early 1900s, this philosophy was coming right alongside of it. And what it dealt with was intentionality and personhood. And this concept of intentionality and personhood is really what has given me the ability in the tech side to be a very solid social media advertiser and marketer for very big brands. Because it really set a standard of understanding um, the equality of what all people are. I think that there's all people have this thing, intentionality. And from that, it really set a nice framework for me, building everything from social ads to um, user interface and design. So I think it's probably the most important thing people can study. And unfortunately, I don't think a lot of people open up the books enough. As you can see probably behind me, that's my philosophy section on this side. And then my business section sort of goes to this side. So um, the philosophy side is still a big part. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I want to get your opinion on something. So a lot of people, and especially entrepreneurs, they say that the education that they got through for, the formal system, you know, going to school, getting good grades, going to college, some it's just not for them for for some people um and and you know it seems like you really had a, a good time and you really learned a lot so could you maybe shed some insight on um how entrepreneurs can really make full use of their time at college or 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 in the formal education system and how they can use that to their advantage as an entrepreneur for me i was very lucky that I grew up and got to play college basketball at least for a few years. And that at least gave me a reason to be there. Trust me, it wasn't really the books that drove me. 
when I realized that my my dreams of going further in basketball were over, I realized that this is something that I'm paying for. And I think that that's one thing that helped me in college, realizing that I have to pay for this. This is my debt that I'm accountable for. So I really tried to get as much out of college as I could. And I really um, was a lot of self-teaching and self-taught in college just because I knew that I wanted to get as much from this time frame as I possibly could. When I act, once I, (coughs) I'm sort of suffering from a cold. Um, When I was in college, I realized I needed to get a lot out of it um, in order to be able to see the return on my investment. Is college for everyone? Probably not. Is it something that makes me who I am today? I can't say that it's not. It it was helpful. I don't discredit people for going to school uh, by any means. Would I go to school to be a humanities major? Maybe not so much. I think that if I had to do it over, I'd probably um, stayed closer to either stats or math, engineering. I wasn't really medical based. So if I see blood, I like pass out almost. So that wasn't for me. But definitely there's things in college that help out. I don't, I'm not really completely in the school of thought where I, you can be an entrepreneur. You don't need school at all. Drop out. I don't think that's really the way that you should be because I just, I try not to quit things that I start. So I finished it out. Now, looking back, was was it the most effective money I've ever spent in my life? No, I've made more money buying software products and reselling it by far, like a thousand times over. But it's hard to really um, base your ROI. I got some college jobs um, based on the fact that I had a bachelor's degree. I know that um, that that helped. But one of my first jobs that I had out of college was with a telecom company. And the president said uh, at a very like company wide meeting, I don't care about anybody that has a college degree. I like the people that don't have college degrees because they know what it's like to work and earn. So, you know, it's definitely a mix and you just sort of got to take it for what it is. There's a lot of smart people out there. Um, and college is a way to go. But um, you can't always agree, you know, you can't always agree. You'll have professors if you go to college that are sometimes wrong, especially if you study philosophy and some of these more subjective, non-hard facts um, driven um, discourses or classes. So it's definitely a mix. But if you're going to be a startup um, player, um, it's just what makes the most sense to to you, you know, is school the right thing or not? For me, it was, but you know, it's completely up to the person. Absolutely, and that's a really good answer. Uh, and and I also like what you said about you know, if you were to go back and do it again, knowing what you know now, that you might have gone more towards like engineering or statistics. That seems very very um, tech savvy. Uh, so so you know that could always that could always benefit you later on, um, but. You know, moving on from, from college, you said after college you stayed in New York for 10 years and you were doing some tech stuff, some startups, some hacking. Could you um, could you maybe give a little bit more insight about what happened in, in those 10 years and, and kind of your journey throughout that time? Sure. So the first thing that I, I was always hacking around on things or playing with the Internet, uh, you know, 
I don't know your age. My age, I'm 35 now, so I was definitely the Nintendo generation. So I was always sort of connected to interaction with a screen, you know, and I think that was a big benefit. So I sort of pivoted out of playing video games and started working with um, really WordPress initially. And knowing that I was in student leadership, one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to build for my um, college that I was at a WordPress and BuddyPress system. So they would be a blog and a social network for the school for student life and student life organizations. So I built this and it like if you were in a certain club, you could build a little blog. And if you were able to have a student ID, you could be in part of the network. So it all worked out and I built it and I was really impressed because I didn't really feel that I built anything. I just more combined stuff that people already built. And I just had to um, essentially assemble it. And it worked. Well, when I was at college too, I did have a job and I worked at an Italian catering hall on Long Island. So that was really awesome. I went and spoke to the owners um, about a year after I was out of college and they were like, Chris, you should do this for weddings. And I'm like, really? They're like, yes, there's a lot of money in it. So I pretty much did the same thing. I built the wedding social network um, based around all the verticals in the wedding world, venues and catering halls and photographers and DJs and limousine guys and you name it. And I knew that by building a blog network, I might be able to make an advertising sort of bridal showcase system. Um, at the time, I was completely naive about going and raising money. So I built something called Countdown to Kiss, which gave brides and grooms the ability to build like a website for their wedding. Okay. And I was frustrated with it because I started getting so many users on it that weren't in my territory that I was trying to sell leads at that I actually turned it off. Okay. Because I was like, I, I don't need these people that are coming in from California and everywhere else. So um, I went out with, the my um, partner Jamie and we started talking to the photographers and DJs that um, he knew just by running his wedding catering hall and they started signing up with me like first day you know so that's what got me into it and I built a network got into what you would call affiliate marketing at the time it was I wanted to have Macy's and um, you know Blue Nile and some of these big wedding brands next to small mom and pops and it ended up that I was I started making affiliate pay because I was starting to get brides and grooms to sign up for bridal registries with Macy's. And um, from that, I saw that there was a startup company that just raised a large round that they were in Facebook building apps like um, I mentioned before. But, you know, these basic apps before the news feed. And I was really one of the first guys to buy real ads on Facebook. Because when it first started Facebook, you couldn't really buy a lot of great ad space. You could buy geo-territory based, but also relationship-based. So with relationships, I could go, any girl that's engaged that's in this geolocation, I want to show my ad to. And I had um, a pretty great relationship with um, Easton Limousine. They were out in the Hamptons, worked for them as well. So we were able to give away a Rolls Royce Ghost as a contest for a wedding. And I just ended up with like a thousand leads in like three months. And I was just like really rocking. And I could um, I could sell the space. I could recycle some leads and sell that 
um, base. And from that, I saw this startup and I was like, wow, what they have is what I want. I, that's an easy thing that I can start selling to these vendors. It's not building a website. And I said, hey, guys, I want to buy your product. And they were so new, the startup, they couldn't sell it to me. And I was like, what's going on? Why won't they sell me this product? And I finally talked to the founder, great guy, Michael Onghai. Um, I was like, Michael, why don't you just let me come on to your team? I can help consult with you guys. And I think I can help drum up some business. So at the time, they were giving away these apps for free. Okay. So my first real growth hack with them is that we put it on Fiverr. Okay. And I created like a little PDF doc and um, like a little, a little link to like, shoot them over to our page. So we went from giving this away for free to charging $5 and I was selling like 40 a day. Okay. So like wow. it really took off and this was right when Fiverr started and I really just showed that it was a proof of concept. Like, Hey, we should start charging people. And we ended up having like 500,000 downloads of our apps across, um, the, the Facebook platform. But, um, our, our sort of major competitors started getting snapped up by Oracle and um, the founder of the startup, Michael, he was very future driven. So he pivoted and got us into loyalty platforms. So he ended up taking a stake in a, a really cool platform um, called Sticky Street. Sticky Street was a loyalty platform that was global. So in all these different countries, all of these agencies use loyalty to incentivize customers to re-engage with a business. So there, there's a lot of stats out there, but essentially it's cheaper to retain clients than it is to acquire clients. And knowing that we had the social media side, we built a bolt-on to this global ecosystem that made like our tagline was we turn likes into leads and leads into loyal customers. So my job for quite a while was just reselling our bolt-on product to this global ecosystem of agencies that needed a solution. And they were already tied to point-of-sale systems and already had a client base. So they just plugged our system in to their current solutions. So that was a, an amazing experience. We launched that in Rome in 2012. So that was an awesome experience and got to see the world a little bit. So that was fun. Um, That's awesome. When we, were, we were there. I actually lost my wedding ring. Now I wear like a very cheap wedding ring. I think I got this for like 20 bucks. Um, my wife's father gave me a wedding ring. Okay. He had worn it for like 25 years. We go to the island of Capri and I lost it right when I got into the water immediately. So if anybody finds a really nice gold ring off that island, that's, that's for me. So um, congratulations, you're the winner. And it was nice. And I, I didn't even have it for like six months. So, but it, uh, going back to the tech side, um, got back to the States and continued to um, manage what we were doing at the startup and the loyalty system. And we, Michael ended up taking over, um, I, essentially it was a company called Booksmart. Um, that was essentially Google AdWords 1.0. So very legacy, but if you were around in the nineties buying ads, that's what you were using. I wasn't buying ads then. I know you weren't. How old are you by the way? I'm uh, I'm actually 22 years old. 
Okay, Ben. So you have no clue what this was. You were like, a um, I don't know what it was either, but it was a legacy name. It was on the NASDAQ. And from that, um, he was able to um, acquire out of um, bankruptcy some pretty major players. We bought Clickable and we bought Syncaps. And when I say we, they bought um, them, I was just sort of on the sidelines. But when they made that um, transaction, they brought me over to LookSmart from the startup. So that's what I was able to do for about a year and a half is manage this omni-channel media management for very large brands, millions of dollars in ad spends per year, per company, and really complex. Um, everything from brick and mortar to um, you know product-based um, companies and really doing like ads for very complicated um, ad buys. So like, let's say if you were a brick and mortar business, you were in 25 country or 25 States, you have 6,000 brick and mortars. We were able to pinpoint your ad sets. So you, we were running ads within 10 miles of each one of your brick and mortars to your defined personas and managing that at scale. Um, some of the other cool things like, um, working with some brands to help them bring their product into other countries, utilizing all the back end of Facebook. Now, Facebook by this time became very advanced because they had the three major data brokers, um, Axiom, Data Logics, and Epsilon that Facebook utilizes to um, better their targeting and their ad audiences. So that works well in the United States. So we were able to tie in our knowledge of buying ads to the current setup of all these new solutions we purchased. And it was a really good marriage between what we were doing in the startup agile side of things to purchase out this company and try to make a big men's and a big play. Um, what was great about that is that it was big business. What was bad about that is that my wife, I had met actually by visiting my mom in Ohio. Um, and we had a long distance relationship for a long time. She ended up um, turning the magnet on and brought me back home to Cincinnati. That's where I really wanted to work. Um, the company I was at, they had um, offices in New York, Phoenix, LA, and San Francisco. And I'm in Cincinnati, so that was fine. But I really thought it would be best if I found a better solution um, for that I could have some more ownership in. And um, comfortably be in my native hometown. So that's why I'm here in Cincinnati. So that's sort of where we're at. Um, I was able to find an angel investor, um, before I made this big leap. So I found an angel investor, told him my concept and raised $300,000 to start primary hosting, which I'm the CEO wow. of today. Wow. So, so I want to get into, um, what you're doing right now, but, but first you said you worked with, uh, in your time in New York, you worked with big companies like Coca-Cola and, and, and massive companies like that. Could you maybe give a little bit of insight on, on what it's like to work with companies like this? Like, like how do you approach them? What, what's the difference between going to a startup and saying, hey, we can help you get leads or we can help you with these you know, omni-channel solutions versus going to somebody like Coca-Cola? Like, what's the difference and, and how do you prepare yourself as an entrepreneur to approach those big kind of businesses? They're totally different animals, for sure. Why I do like the small business market, you're usually talking to a smaller team 
and there's less red tape. So, and you can grow a small business tremendously. I mean, a thousand percent, six thousand percent. I mean, the numbers can just be gigantic. Going and working with Coca Cola, you're incremental at best. I mean, if they have 50 million fans on Facebook, if you get them 60,000 friends or followers or activations in a month, that's incremental at best, you know. So, the excitement between what you're doing for a big brand and what you're doing for a smaller brand is completely different. You're not going to get the pats on the back necessarily for going with the big brands. The second thing with big brands is that you get to work with better content. That's a major plus. Um, one of my clients now Scripps Media. So um, with Scripps, they create amazing content. They're in 40 markets and they they have um, in Cincinnati, they have the um the access rights for like dancing with the stars and um oh my gosh just just a whole lineup of great content when you work with a small business you usually have to create the content if you're the agency or they just won't have it or they won't have the budget to create it so you got to be more inventive so that can be the big difference um the with big brands especially when you're going after like Nike's or, you know, Pepsi's and Coke's and things like that, you're going to end up with startups that want to work with them for free. And they, they've just raised millions and millions of dollars. And it's hard to compete with people that want to do stuff for free. And big brands are very selective and their sales cycle is very, very slow. So that's, tough where you can go with a small business, talk to the CEO, start working with them the next day. So the time to market is a thousand times faster typical in the small business space. And you can find better margins. Like they're smarter on the the business side. Like Cincinnati, their local brands, PNG. PNG is the largest ad spend um, based business in the world. I wish they were my client. I try to keep telling them that I'm a Cincinnati native and they should give me at least a chance, but um, we'll see. I keep talking about data-driven marketing to them too. So Mark Pritchard, their um, digital CEO, just said that he's going to revamp the supply chain to make it more visible because they've realized that agencies have been taking them for um, a lot of money or not really doing the best for their business. Um, but typically big businesses are much more savvy. So you can get a million dollar ad spend, but you're competing for four or 5% of the ad spend for your agency fees where you can go to a small business. And I have a different, like a different mindset. Like I try to be transparent and try not to like, you know, completely strip out, um, all the money from a small business by any means, but you can charge 20 or 30% or a hundred percent of your cost because they're just a smaller budget. They might spend a thousand dollars a month, but pay you $500 for management. You know, you might work that same thousand dollars for a bigger business and you make $30 on. So the, the economies of scale can hurt you if you go up market and you don't have the systems in place. The systems for big businesses are expensive as well, you know, SynCap's clickable can be millions of dollars in contracts. You know, you can start up using native Facebook and Google ads just by 
logging in, you know. So finding a happy medium is really, really the big deal. And it was really probably one of the main reasons I pivoted to start my own company because my product became like I started with small businesses. Then we had Facebook apps that were everywhere and easy to deploy. And then I got into loyalty, which was tied into point of sale systems and a slower sales cycle. And luckily I was working with the integrators and the agencies that could implement it. But, um, once I got to the point where it's new business and very, very large scale, it's, it's just harder to win deals. It, it's a much slower business um, sell cycle. Proving your worth is still tough because I think everybody still thinks that there's a 14-year-old that's going to outwork and outcode you, and they're probably right. So you got to find you know your balance and when i had a product that was so expensive i met with businesses and i realized that i couldn't help them i i was pigeonholed sort of into a product that they couldn't afford so i would help them like if i were you this is what i would do i do a b c d and e however i offer this product over here that we shouldn't even have met you know cuz you can't afford it i'm not even going to pitch it to you so that's that's really where I found the big divide is that if you want to go very far up market, it's much harder to go back down market with your product. And in the startup world, the people I feel that are going to win are going to be the low cost, high value providers. So you're going to find the the people that will charge 20 bucks a month for a service that only a year or so ago people were charging ten thousand dollars a month. So you always have to be aware that someone's coming to unseat you and, you know, sort of um, Murphy's law that it's going to get cheaper and faster every 18 months. And that's a definite fact. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, that that kind of that kind of brings uh, brings me to, to to my next point of, you know, when you have all of these companies that are that are doing it for cheaper, they're doing it for, for better, they're doing it faster, you know, how do you how do you stay competitive? How do you um, continue to educate yourself as an entrepreneur? You have to do it. I I'm really shocked that there's non technical startup founders. I think that if you don't understand tech and can't really dive in like i'm not the best coder by far i've met people that are amazingly good at coding you know and they they're rock stars however they may not have the business savvy to understand what a business person will buy so you got to have a mix of what the market will understand and buy versus what can be built and you got to be able to accurately identify if you're going to do custom coded platforms that you're going to own you have to be very realistic in what your product is, what product market fit it has. If you can extend it as far as you think it can be. I've I've had some real major home runs, grand slams actually, with some businesses that are incredibly fair to work with and offer a great product. And at the same time, I've worked with agencies or um, startups that feel that they are the next Facebook or, you know, they raise $50,000 and feel they're a billion dollar valuation and they want to keep things exclusive or they don't think about building an API or, you know, whatever it may be that if they're unwilling to 
modify what they're doing. And if I want to work with them, I've realized that I have to find out what their platform actually is, what their ramp up time to actually launch it would be. And if they're um, really capable of keeping up with people that will embrace the idea that it's an open world and there's open source and there's closed source, but you know, where they best evaluate their product versus where the world is going. And it can be tough. Some startups want to charge a lot of money for products that are half baked. Um, they want to tie people in or have this ownership of they're a billion dollar company, but haven't made $10,000 yet. And those can be very tough to work with. Um, narcissism and egoism can be tough. I mean, I think it can be important. Everybody likes Steve Jobs and the concepts that he, he built, you know, but that's typically a rarity. You know, it's much easier to work with open people that um, look forward to partner and modify their stuff as opposed to stay very, very strict into their offering. Now, there's great companies that are strict in their offering. You have like Twilio and you have some other major companies that are great. Facebook's awesome, obviously. Um, but those are rare, you know, so it's really finding good people more than platforms sometimes that you can find as, you know, good partners and good teammates to pass the ball off to when you need them to make the shot. And, you know, you got to make sure too, that the costing that they're thinking they can get, um, you can pass on to the client and still ensure that you can make some money using their platform because sometimes it's impossible to, to implement a product for a, using a company's platform if it's just outpricing the market. So Absolutely. there's a lot of things to look into. Absolutely. And you know, when, when you're talking about being open and, and adaptable, uh, that actually reminds me of a quote and uh, you know, the name escapes me, but the quote is entrepreneurs have to be rigid in the problem that they're trying to solve, but flexible in how they approach that problem. So it's it's exactly like you're saying. You know, you might have uh, some some problem or some issue that you can solve that that your company is hell bent on solving, like omni-channel marketing, for example. But the way you go about solving that, you know, you have some some different options. You can pivot. You can you can you know work with other people and make partnerships and, and figure it out. So you know, I really think that what you said was profound. Um, that you really do have to be open and, and flexible in order to adapt and, and to keep growing. So, you know, um, we talked about how you, you, you know, you work with all these startups and, and you, you got into this whole scene and then you moved back to Cincinnati and, and now you're starting your own thing. So could you maybe give a little bit of insight on what you're doing now, um, you know, a little bit more into what your company does and, and is and, and just, you know, that, that whole shebang? So what primary hosting is, is a cloud brokerage platform. And that concept is really designed around businesses will utilize telecom. They're going to utilize cloud services. They're going to utilize marketing tech. They're going to utilize open source. They're going to utilize pay-per-click advertising. Cloud brokerage is bringing all of these solutions, 
um, Salesforce CRM, Google Office, um, Microsoft as well, into one platform that consolidates multiple vendors and suppliers in one place and in as few bills as possible. So we have it down that if a business, I was in telecom, so I always liked the model that telecom companies had. They are deploying cell phones. If you look at Verizon, they're internet in some locations, TV. And that's a complex thing to sell and deploy. But what I always really liked about them is that they also tied in billing, management, and support. Um, so that's what my idea with cloud brokerage is, is being able to quote complex telecom, TV, email, cloud services, marketing tech, email marketing providers, data dashboard solutions, any website work. We have um, vendors for developing um, platform-driven Android and iPhone apps and managing pay-per-click on a programmatic scale. That way we can ramp up um, a business and ensure that they're getting the best solutions regardless of the supplier or carrier. So we're really going in first for the business and then ensuring that we're sort of that um, liaison and support structure to ensure that all of their solutions across the board not only are working, but um, are being billed correctly and supported and launched as needed by the business. That's really cool. So you're kind of like the middleman between businesses who need all these solutions and maybe they don't know where to find them or where to go or what prices they should be paying. So they come to you and you say, okay, this, you know, for this one issue you're having, there's this vendor and this solution can be found here. And so you're matching up those two sides. Am I, am I understanding? That's right. right. We have a right under 400 supplier carrier partners right now. So my first year out in the startup, that's was the main thing is, um, to really become a master agency um, in the sense that we have these supplier carrier relationships and can quote complex products. And we have um, the ability to ensure that the business is properly matched into the product. And though that's utility and that's not the, the funnest place to be, and telecom's been around for a long time, we really view it as almost like the Uber of telecom in the sense that we own zero infrastructure, but we can always order up anything that's needed. Where we really find the most um, capability is in our marketing and ad tech background. So that's really where we see that we're marking up the commodities. Um, we've developed a lot of cool equipment products alongside this too. So um, we do a lot with Verizon Internet of Things. We're one of their partners. So we developed something called a selfie machine. That is a modern um, photo booth, essentially. We have <laughs> a couple dozen deployed, but um, they're very easy, lightweight systems that are taken into events or trade shows or hard-mounted in venues. And you go up to it. The screen is a touch screen, and it's branded to your business. You touch it. It counts on three, two, one. Snaps your photo. You put your phone number in, and then it texts the guest the picture, and then it can send the photo up to Facebook, and then it captures the information for marketing automation or loyalty programs. 
We have a social Wi-Fi solution that's really awesome that um, you go to a place that's like a coffee shop and you go to log online or you go really anywhere and you see your passwords that, oh, I got to put the password in. It's always weird. We have a system that just use Facebook or you use um, your phone number, email address, and that's the user authentication onto the Wi-Fi network. And then we can put that on the marketing automation. So we really try to find not only software and solutions, but equipment products that can be placed into certain businesses that are a really good product market fit and well supported. And we have the deployment team to to put that in. That way, businesses can really figure out what they need. And um, what's really the interesting thing that we're opening up is our white label agency solution. So you can put this, if you're an agency, you can have all of our products. You can see all the rate card costing. You can mark up our rate card. Um, The support goes to us. The agency sees the support ticketing and the deployment process. But um, they're on our platform and able to better serve their customers. I really feel that it's going to be tough to be a freelancer in the future if you don't really own the marketing stack or the tech stack. Um, you're really expendable. So by putting this in place, it enables agencies to have a little bit um, stickier relationship with the clients. And for us, it allows us to scale up because we don't have to be the face-to-face sales force um, on the ground. That's awesome, man. That, that's brilliant. So, you know, when, when you are looking for your ideal customer, right, um, who are you looking for? Who, who, who are you trying to sell to really? Okay. So like I said, I love small businesses, but what I found is that if I go into a small business, it's notoriously tough to differentiate myself from that 14 year old I was talking about a little earlier. You know, they don't know who's in front of them, you know, and what type of quality of work and, you know, I'm not really in the business of begging for a $500 a month contract. Please, please, you know, pay me, I'll, I'll deliver. But I like that space. Um, usually I'm going to go after like enterprise clients myself, but I still work with a lot of smaller businesses when possible. So I don't want to completely compete with my agencies that are being onboarded onto my white label solution. So I'm really starting to pivot this year in 2017 to the full agency stack. That way we can go to accelerators, startups, agencies, um, especially marketing agencies. And we've automated a lot of the solutions and systems. So um, if you're a marketing agency and you're a decent agency, you're doing WordPress work and PPC and SEO and, you know, whatever else, marketing and content and, you know, creative. We have systems that, um, and what I found is that you talk to these companies and then they're like, okay, well, we'll build a WordPress site. They'll sell it for 20 grand to a big brand or whoever, but then they still need five other people to help them even turn on a server with a domain name and an SSL certificate. So we've set it up that that happens in like three minutes, you know, tied to a customer. So we try to do the fundamentals really well. And that goes back to basketball. Fundamentals are very important. So it's not fun selling SSL certificates or, you know, cPanel and WHM sort of WordPress stuff, but you have to be able to do the stuff that's very simple, very well, and very automated and very fast. 
in order to really scale up some of these other things. So we help the agencies really do the fundamentals well, and hopefully they get educated enough to sell our higher end products. That's awesome. That, that's really cool. Uh, it's a very interesting business model. So, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about your past. Uh, we talked about what you're doing now, which is still really cool. Um, so what is, what is the future hold for Chris? You know, what, where do you see yourself going in, in, you know, five, 10, 20 years? It's so hard to see what the future sort of holds. You know, I know that I like artificial intelligence a lot. Going back to philosophy, if, if I could really scale primary hosting, I'd really like to get into artificial intelligence and bots. I'm really inter- interested in drone technology and live streaming video right now. I try to have an outlook on what's sellable today, what's going to be in the market next year, what's a little too far out, and what's in, in science fiction still. So I think voice recognition is super cool. I love Alexa and what they're doing right now. We've been coding a lot on some stuff there. Um, we're doing a lot with like video aggregation. So we just built a prototype called greatminds.tv. It's really cool. I told you I like philosophy. So what we were able to do, we aggregate all of the philosophy based YouTube, um, videos Um, based upon every philosopher. And it's like, instead of having a book, why not have the best content? There's so much great content out there. It's really about how do you organize and curate some of this content and distribute it out to the right folks. Um, I have some partners that were working really hard on some smart city um, applications. So like that space, like touch screens, I think touch screens and businesses are really going to be the, the driving future for the next couple of years is that touch screens are going to be where it's at. Um, so I know I'm always going to be in tech. Um, it's just where it's going to take me. You know, I got to hit my priorities with primary hosting, keep my investors happy. And tomorrow flying to New York to talk to a, a very large VC firm. So we'll see if they're interested. So I try to not, I, I'm a pretty broad thinker. And I try to think very big, but I try to keep it like, what do I got to do today? Like, I, I would never say that, you know, I need a billion dollar valuation and we're going that way. But um, I do know that tech's going to bring on some cool things. And I just like to be on at least somewhere in the, in the bell curve in the early stages of some of this stuff. Absolutely. That's awesome. So, you know, when, when, when you're talking about like, you know, 5, 10, 20 years in the future, it's really, it's really interesting to hear what people say. And, um, you know, it, it, so it's cool that you know where you want to go, but again, you just don't know exactly how you're going to get there or, or what, um, you know, what, what path you're going to take. Uh, but, but I still want to talk a little bit more about your future. So if you had to say what you want to leave behind as your legacy, what would that be? Well, I have two phenomenal little girls right now. So I'm heavily immersing them into maker spaces. And, you know, one's like 14 months, the other's three and a half. So trying to get them to be tech driven and understand that. So seeing them develops awesome. Um, And that's probably my future for sure is, you know, seeing how I can be a big part 
of my family. And also when the reason I moved back to Cincinnati, it wasn't because it's easier to close deals in Cincinnati. Trust me, it's not. It was much easier to close deals in New York and L.A. Um, it was really because I wanted to get back to the community here. I think that's really important. Um, I don't know what that'll lead to, but I do see that, um, you know, I want to do some things with some raspberry pies in schools locally this year. And hopefully that will be an impact. Um, I know that when I was in college, I wanted to be a professor or a teacher. So some way I can pivot myself into educating others and making it meaningful would be good. That's why I'm not totally against college, you know, or universities, but um, I, I hope that's what can happen, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I have uh, I have two more questions for you. I really do appreciate your time. You know, uh, you're doing all these things. I can only imagine how busy you must be. But earlier on, you you talked about the importance of mentors, and you said when you were in school, um, Dr. Watson, I believe you said. Um, so, could you maybe talk about the importance of mentors? To you, and then um, maybe talk about how mentors are, are important to entrepreneurs in general after that. Sure. So, my mom and dad got divorced when I was like real young. Okay, I was like three. My dad's like by no means a deadbeat. I'm like so grateful and thankful, right? He was definitely in my life. But um, I really felt that growing up, coaches really stepped in, right? And I always had great coaches and it's not like I knew how to play sports, but the coaches I had were really great at giving direction, running a group, running a team, really making us all feel like we're a part of the same unit. So I really think that um, sports really helped out um, seeing the importance of, um, of mentorship in that sense. When I got to college, I pivoted and Dr. Watson was awesome. He really opened my eyes up to what do you do as a professional as opposed to, you know, sort of being a kid and thinking as a kid and then growing up and putting aside those things and trying to be something, you know, a little bit more professional. Um, when I got to tech, um, definitely one of the most inspiring mentors and coworkers. I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to work with him, Michael Onghai. Um, he was the number three guy, three guy at GeoCities and the software engineer. Okay, so the guy had a billion dollar exit in the 90s. And then he got into um, Columbia and became a CFA and got into hedge funds. And he was always working at a visionary level that I'm just now understanding. Some of the things he was telling me seven or eight years ago, I couldn't even grasp because I was coming out of like, I'm getting leads from Facebook and I'm selling them and that's what we're doing. And I'm putting stuff on Fiverr and I'm selling them. And he's like, Chris, you got to start thinking about like voice recognition. And this is well before Alexa and Google home, you know, so in Siri. So it's like, I don't even know what that means, Mike. You know what I mean? But being pointed into new things, that way I was more aware. So that was important for me. Um, recently, and one of the areas that I've always liked, I've always liked the Silicon Valley and the tech side of things, but um, some of the greatest people that I find are um, in the internet marketing space. When you look at like a JV Zoo or a Warrior Forum and Warrior Plus, 
Okay, so you have EBR, E. Brian Rose. He's now running for Congress, but he built an amazing platform for affiliates that they're able to knock out just a ton of launches and distribution through a system. And not saying that all the products that are coming out of the IM space are good, uh, you know, definitely not. But when lightning strikes in that space, you'll see a $27 product that was just being sold for $27,000. So that's the big difference in the space. And having that outlook and that um, what EBR has been able to do in that space, it's just been really cool. So last night, Michael Hiles came over and with this cloud brokerage platform that I'm putting together and really working hard on, he was like, Chris, why don't you think about Upwork and Freelancer and this Fiverr gig economy, tying it in to your brokerage platform. So now you have the equipment, you have the software, you have the telecom suppliers, and now you have the work to deploy the, the solutions for the client at a way that the customer can be happy. We're doing a transparent service for the customer. And it just opened up my eyes. So mentors, I think, whether you call them a mentor or a, like, luckily I call most of mine friends. So that's, that's something I'm very grateful for as well. But, um, they just open your eyes to new opportunities and, you know, you can pass on the ball sometimes, but mentors, I think that I've seen, um, really step in and push you into directions that you didn't know you needed to go. So I think that's, if you can find them out there, definitely, um, you know, respect their time and their efforts, but definitely um, try to find them where you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I completely agree with you that mentors are so incredibly important. I mean, every everybody that has been wildly successful in, in interviews and when you hear them speak and, and when they if they write books, almost all of them talk about having mentors and some form of mentor in their life, whether it be you know, their, their, their mother or their father or a coach or, you know, just somebody who's very wise, a, a professor, you know, and, and so I definitely encourage everybody that's listening to go find mentors um, and, and reach out to those people that, that are, you know, further along on their journey than you are. Um, so, you know, I, I do have one more question for you. Uh, again, it's been a fantastic interview, man. I really do appreciate you coming on the show. Um, but is there anything about yourself that you think is an important part of who you are that I did not ask you about today? In other words, what did I miss? Okay, so this is one thing that I hope becomes an actuality this year. Um, I A couple months ago, I was really trying to dig up some of this philosophy stuff that um, I worked on in college and I was like, you know what? This sounds like it's the coolest thing. It's what I want to do for my life. But it was hard to find buyers, right? So I created something called the I model. And it's based upon intentionality and what personhood is. And I developed this about 10 years ago, but I've used it as an internal sort of algorithm or tool, but didn't really put it out there as something professional. Um, a couple weeks ago, I got the nerve to actually say, you know what, I'm just going to push a couple things out to a couple Facebook groups that are like in philosophy and things like that. And, um, it was really well received so much so that, um, 
I am starting to work with um, a really nice gentleman. His name's Anthony Clemens. Um, he's with um, General Dynamics um, and awesome, awesome, gigantic company. And he found that um, what I worked on is very valuable and you can see some really cool applications for it. So hopefully over the next year or so, I can start pivoting into more of a a thought leader on some of the concepts and ideas that I worked on early on that I spent a lot of time on um, and sort of set aside and hope that one day I'd work on them again. Um, I think those are going to start hitting um, this year. So keep your eye out for the eye model. And um, I think that might work out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, if, if anybody wanted to maybe reach out to you or, or get in touch with you, how do you think they would go about doing that? Okay, so I'm definitely on Facebook. Um, Christopher Brock, you can, I, I'm there. So I, I think that's probably the easiest way. Um, my website for primary hosting is um, primary.hosting, just primary.hosting, no.com. No.org, not net, just primary.hosting. Um, that way you can check out what we're doing. Um, you can call us direct. There's phone numbers on the website. But um, connecting with us online, I have a decent connection throughout. So, you know, if you're, you're friends with Ben, you're, you're easily just one connection away to me. So um, you can point on my way. Um, other than that, I'm not very big on any of the other social networks. I was always one that was more of the implementer doing for businesses and not so much um, out there to to post on social media. I'm going to try to do that a little bit more. Um, I think I got scared last year. Now, this is something you can Google as well. But um, I was really into intentionality, right? And there was a book called The Intention Economy. And this book was by Doc Searles, and it talks about vendor relationship management, and it talks about the future of tech and all this great stuff. Um, well, I mentioned something to him on social media one day, and he ended up writing um, a, a gigantic blog blasting me in the ad tech business as creepy. So I was a little bit, um, you know, off-putting. It was a little off-putting for me to just post on social because I didn't realize the impact I could have so quick. So I felt that, you know, I didn't want to hurt up my businesses I was working with. So I just sort of stayed under the radar a little bit more, but, um, you can definitely check it out. It's on the Harvard EDU blog about ad tech and marketing tech. You can let him know that he was a little bit wrong. If you agree with the marketing and ad tech side, and um, hopefully I get a little bit more out there this year. And I very highly encourage you to reach out to Chris um, any of your um, primary hosting needs, absolutely go to Chris. Um, you know, I can say that he will give you undeniably good service and you know you're in good hands. You know, you, you just heard a story. So, you know, I, I encourage you to reach out to him and, um, and, and do some business with him or, or just reach out to him, to him and chat. He's a really good guy. So, you know, I do want to thank um, you, Chris, for, for jumping on and for taking time out of your busy schedule, but I also want to thank uh, everybody who's listening. You awesome people are the reason that we're doing this. Um, Y'all are the the fuel to this this ever-growing fire, and, um, you know, that uh, I do it for you. Uh, I love you guys. I really do. So stay tuned for more. Um, there will be plenty more. 
Uh, Project Egg's not going anywhere anytime soon. So thank you so much. This has been another Project Egg interview with Chris Brock from Cincinnati, Ohio. Take care. See you guys. Thank you, buddy.